A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. So yeah, so uh, I'm David. Um, here's the information for, uh, uh, for the slides and how you can contact me. Um, so my title, my job title, I work at the Chicago Reporter. I haven't been there very long, less than three months. Uh, my job title is uh, editor of design and delivery. Um, we're at an audio conference, and yet we're talking about data. And you'll notice that my title doesn't include data. Um, we're in an audio conference, so you know, interesting, interesting. Why, why, why is this? What, what the hell's going on here? Um, and we'll get into that in a second. Uh, one thing I do want to say is uh, content and trigger warning. Um, we're going to be speaking dispassionately, um, but about some very serious subjects, mostly towards the end of the presentation, but all through, the, there's going to be examples of fairly heavy subject matter. Specifically, we'll be talking about Ivy Wells' work uh, covering lynching. Um, we're going to be talking about murder and domestic violence, mass disappearance. Um, so just you know, be warned, and, and I understand that you know, even if it's not graphic or we're not showing graphic images, sometimes talking about these things sort of analytically or dispassionately can be troubling as well um, and troubling in a different way. So I uh, just wanted to give you a heads up that, that we are going to be covering that material. Um, and you know, as always, take care of yourself. So uh, the title of the talk is The, the Right to Bear Data. Uh, that was something that the, the organizers um, sort of came up with, and so I wanted to kind of riff on it um, and talk about how data is a weapon um, and how to weaponize data. My boss texted me last night, and he was like, "He was like, should we use the word weapon? The Third Coast crowd is a peace-loving crowd." <laughs> um, and uh, and uh, I, I, I totally I, I understood him, but he was like, "Well, maybe we should say tool or device." And I I I, I couldn't come up with a better word, but I don't want to. I don't want to discount kind of the, the explosiveness or the power of data, right? It's, it's not just a tool. You know, people say, you know, like, like people say like oh, it's just a tool. Um, you can do anything you want with it. It's like, no, it's actually, it's actually really quite, quite dangerous and, 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 uh, and powerful. Um, and, you know, the normal mode of, of data is, is, is that it's sort of weaponized against us. So this is an example uh, from two days ago. This is my, wife, my sister's father-in-law's Facebook feed. Um, and there's sort of two things going on here. One, there's this sort of fake news article. Um, it's not really fake. It's, it's, it's kind of cracking on the facts. But it's also complete BS, right? More people killed with knives, hammers, clubs, and even feet than rifles in 2018. Um, sure, yeah, not a lot of people get murdered with hunting rifles. Um, big deal, right? Like, like, this is data trivia in some sense, and, and, and the article itself is just ludicrous. 
Um, and it's being shared on Facebook, which is a platform that, that, that weaponizes our data against us, right? Like, we all contribute. We're basically Facebook's workers. Um, and then they take all your data and they sell it to the highest bidder, um, Cambridge Analytica, whatever. Um, this is Maria Ressa. She's one of the, uh, in my opinion, one of the world's sort of great investigative journalists. She works in the Philippines. Um, and she gave a keynote about a month ago where she talked about sort of the, the complicated relationship that she has with Facebook because Facebook has driven state violence and, and a repressive regime in the Philippines. And yet her publication, Rappler, owes its existence to Facebook. It probably wouldn't exist if there wasn't Facebook. Um, and so she's incredibly thoughtful and nuanced. I'd suggest that you go check out her keynote. Um, but data can also be used for us. It can also be used... That, that explosive, or, uh, that real power that data has can also be used for us. And so this is Outlier Media um, in Detroit. Uh, you can text them, and they will take your address and compare it against public records and, and let you know if your water is going to be shut off or if you're uh, going to be evicted soon. And they create this feedback loop with readers, or, or I don't even know what you, what you call them, text recipients. Um, but it's an SMS-based news service. It's a text messaging-based news service that takes this public data and, and turns it around and turns it into a tool of power um, for their audience. So data is a weapon. Has anybody seen the Iron Giant? Y'all remember the Iron Giant? I'm going to spoil it a little bit. But, you know, the Iron Giant uh, is this big robot that was, was created to wreak havoc and destruction um, on the world. And the Iron Giant realizes after befriending this young boy that, that he doesn't want to be a gun. Um, and he says, I'm not a gun. And uh, he's going to save the world. But with his massive power, um, he says, you are who you, who you choose to be. And I think that's sort of a way to think about how we, how we think about data itself. So why isn't data in my job title? Why don't I kind of like embrace that as sort of a central part of, of my identity, even though I'm come from a software development background. Well, it's because uh, data is a given. I think that, that journalists just have to contend with data. We've had to contend with data for centuries at this point, as we'll see in this presentation. But, but nowadays, it's just so important to get your head around, around what data is, what it means, how to use it for your work, um, whether it's storytelling, journalism, or anything else. So I sort of have a big picture framing that I like to use, which sort of takes us back from, from data itself and says, what data-driven, this is fancy, but like, what data-driven strategic and technical interventions will improve and transform your product? And it's not just about adding to, your, to, to the work that you're doing, but it actually changes the nature of the work that you're doing um, to sort of work with data, and we'll see a lot of examples of that. Data makes good internet, it makes good radio, it makes good TV. Um, it's really important for sort of multi-platform uh, storytelling. So let's just look at a bunch of case studies. So let's start with sort of a, a, a proposition. Data serves something. It serves something or somebody. It's created for a reason. And often that is to serve power, whether it's capitalist power or government power, state power. So it, it's really important to think really hard about what your data means. Okay, so this is uh, the uh, Chicago Data Portal, an open data release of uh, crime in Chicago by the Chicago Police Department. Is this crime? Like, literally, is this, is this all the data that we could possibly, all the things that we could possibly know about crime? Right, people are shaking their heads. Why is that? So these are crime reports, right? So some of these aren't crimes, 
the police showed up and they wrote down that there's a burglary or whatever, and, and there wasn't. Lots of these things may not actually have been crimes. Lots of crimes that are committed never make it into this data, right? Like there's fancy neighborhoods you could go to tonight and score cocaine and there's not going to be a police officer like, hmm, busting you. But if you go down State Street down here, there will be police all over the place. And so understanding what, the, understanding what your data is and what it means is really, really important. And finding other, other sources to understand it. So in addition to looking at crime report data, you should look at the National Crime Victimization Survey, which calls people and, and finds out what, you know, they decide if you've been a victim of crime, whether or not you reported it to the police. Um, and the fact that law enforcement data and NCVS data sort of track the same trends gives us a good sense that the law enforcement data is, is on some level reliable. Um, but to use a very personal story, so I was, I was this, over 10 years ago, but I was riding my bike. I, I sort of said something to a police officer who was arresting somebody on the side of the street, and the police came and they beat me up. Um, and big shocker, they didn't fill out the right paperwork. Right? So there's a lot of stuff that's not ever going to appear in here. Like, who, who does this data serve? How's it being collected? So all data comes from somewhere. There's some process by which it's, it's collected. So I did a project, we'll see it in a minute, uh, about parking tickets in Chicago, which are a big problem, a, a social problem. Um, we're the only city, or we're the only city in the U.S. that, that uses it as a, as a major revenue driver um, for the city budget. And looking through the addresses in this ticket data, we were seeing a lot of streets that, like, the address should have been West Division Street, but it was East Division Street at an address that would have put you out on the lake. And we were kind of wondering, what, like, what the hell's going on here? So I acted like a good reporter for once in my life, and I went out and I followed a parking ticket person around as he was writing parking tickets. And it turns out that his device had this kind of Blackberry-like keyboard this guy had, like, big fingers. He got really weirded out by me. <laughs> and it, so there was a specific pattern that we were saying, like, why is West and East constantly being transposed in these addresses? It's like, oh, yeah, the crappy little BlackBerry keyboard. This big dude with these big fingers is trying to type in addresses on this Wii keyboard and constantly transposing the, uh, the addresses. And so that's, that's part of the thinking that you have to apply when you're approaching data is, is is who is it for, who does it serve, and how is it collected, right? Um, if it's collected on a crappy BlackBerry keyboard, you're going to have typing errors. Um, if it's collected by funky sensors, you're going to have funky noise from the sensors. I, I, any way of collecting data is going to have noise and complexity that's based on the, the literal mechanics of collecting it. So data needs context, and it needs reporting. This is sort of a classic thing, but it's something that you'll see uh, uh, that pops up often is, is you know, crime maps or things like if things of this nature are actually just population maps. So if you look at a crime map of San Francisco and you look at a population density map of San Francisco, they're basically the same thing. I saw somebody tweeting like, oh my God, it's so scary to live in the mission. The, the, the crime's so high and they posted a picture of a heat map of San Francisco. It's like, well, yeah, everybody lives in the mission, though, right? Like, the dangerous parts aren't, aren't necessarily the mission. There's more crime because there's more people. That's particularly relevant here in Chicago. So I live in a neighborhood called Rogers Park. Um, there's a neighborhood on the west side called Austin. Austin is, you know, what, what's often sort of thought of as Chirac, right? But Austin is the most populous neighborhood in Chicago. And when you, when you actually normalize for population, yeah, it's not, a, it's, it's not the safest neighborhood, but it's actually, it's actually the, violence, the level of violence and crime is, is very similar to my neighborhood. And yet my neighborhood's considered a nice place to live. 
and Austin's considered Chirac. So maybe there's something else going on there, because who lives in my neighborhood? A lot of different kinds of people, and who lives in Austin? Mostly African Americans. So maybe we're not actually talking about violence, maybe we're talking about racial fears, right? And maybe that's what those maps are, and, and the, the, that way of deploying data, like, oh, you know, Austin, Chicago's deadliest neighborhood, um, which the New York Times did, in fact, is, is, is actually a really dangerous framing and, and reflects biases more than it reflects on the ground realities. So here's an output of that ticket project. And so instead of using a big map, which would make it hard to see some of the, the important context, we turn the data into cards that give you some uh, additional context. So where a thing is is important, but other things are important about it as well. So you can see, these are, this is, this is the uh, a percentage of tickets that are issued by the police, and that's one of the big disparities in ticketing in Chicago. Some neighborhoods are really ticketed by the police, and some neighborhoods are really ticketed by private contractors. And what you see here is that even though these neighborhoods are all around the city, they're all African-American neighborhoods, where, where people are being ticketed primarily by police officers and not by private contractors. So this is sort of a way of sort of trying to get out of that and, and provide that additional context. And, and you can tell me if it's successful. But really trying to convey more than, you know, tra really trying to combine multiple kinds of data to sort of paint a richer picture. Okay, so here's an interesting one. So this is a project I worked on, or well... So I worked on a parallel project when I was at NPR. We'll see that in a second. Um, so there was a Pentagon program, is a Pentagon program, that gives weapons to local law enforcement agencies. Um, guns, tanks, all sorts of stuff. And the New York Times did this map, you know, mapping the spread of, of the military surplus gear. And here's Sacramento County, California. You can see it. And you can see that Sacramento has, like, almost 800 assault rifles, 17 helicopters, eight grenade launchers. But what's important about Sacramento? It's the capital, right, right. The capital is in Sacramento County. And so this is not, it's not wrong. This data isn't inaccurate. Yes, like the agencies that receive this data have a mailing address in Sacramento. Um, but we called and, and it, we called the agencies. And yeah, it turns out that like those helicopters are being used for forestry around the state. We found out that state agencies were, yeah, like a mailing address um, for this gear was Sacramento, but the, the gear itself was being distributed all around the state. But, you know, the map looks pretty good. So NPR did something that was a little less, a little less flashy. It's not, it's not quite as exciting. You know, it's just some charts. Um, we did some kind of basic roll-ups and analysis and just counted and, uh, to try to understand the scale of the program. Because this, really, this doesn't really give you a sense of the scale of the program. These are just the counties where most people live, right? So our analysis wasn't fancy, but it did get cited in Congress. And so I think that's a way of kind of thinking about this, right, is what's the right approach to this data? What's going to actually tell us something? And starting to ask those questions when you see something like, huh, like Sacramento is way overrepresented in this data set, well, why is that? And, and going out and actually reporting and, and calling and finding out why that might be. At the same time, data can provide context. So related to the same project, uh, a year later, um, the White House announced, hey, we're going to scale back this project a lot. We're going to reform it. You know, this was this you know, nice press release for Obama. And we were like, huh, interesting. I wonder if all the gear that they're now banning was actually ever given out during the program. And it turns out that the, what the White House had done is that they banned all this equipment that had never been given out in the program in the first place. So they banned like howitzers and like tanks with tracks instead of wheels. 
Yeah, so, so cool, nice press release, bro. But like, we were able to go back to this data and, and find out something deeper and more interesting and, and sort of challenge an official narrative, which is going to be a theme that comes up over and over again today. So data needs translation, right? Like, I haven't showed you a single spreadsheet. Um, I'm not going to show you a single spreadsheet. I'm not going to show you a SQL query. Uh, we can talk about that stuff later. But ultimately, like, to understand data, we're, we're going to have to translate it. So I want to talk a little bit about translating it into sound, um, since this is an audio conference. Uh, so this is a really interesting one. So this is the Harlem Heat project that WNYC did. This is actually a really good example of a couple kind of profound ideas, which is that they built their own database. They put sensors in people's houses and said, are they over the acceptable limit for humans' heat exposure? Um, and they found out that no, they aren't. Um, and so then they sonified it. And so it went into a radio piece, but then they, they also did this chart. Let me see if I can pull it up. Um, that was the goal. We'll see if it works. Okay, so yeah, so they figured out a way of sonifying um, this data set. It's in the radio piece. It gets a little loud. Ugh, ugh. Well, but that's because people are burning up um, outdoors. Okay. Um, and so they just used a simple melodic scale to give a sense of, of heat. They used it on the radio piece. They also paired it with a data visual. It's a really cool data project that, that really touches on a lot of these themes. Uh, here's another one. This is a much harder one for, I think, most of us to, to pull off. Uh, but Radiolab had, uh, had a choir sing the way that different animals perceive color. Um, it's really beautiful. It's really cool. Really cool example of data sonification. Uh, Reveal has done some really powerful stuff. They did uh, a thing called Oklahoma Shakes. And, and these are all great crossovers because there's great digital content, um, great social content that comes out of this, and great, great just straight-up audio that can go on the radio or in your podcast. So really, really, really cool examples. And most of them are relatively accessible in terms of, of being able to do. Here's also a, a very goofy one that the, uh, very nerdy, um, that the Financial Times did. But you can see, like, Financial Times is not really much of an audio shop, but, but, but they wound up um, sonifying the, the U.S. yield curve um, in ways that are, they're, it's, it's, it's a pretty fun one. It's a long video, though, so. Um, then uh, data can also just inform your day-to-day -day storytelling and, and reporting. Here's two stories that uh, I either worked on or edited at NPR, you may hear Adrian uh, Florido talk about uh, the coverage of Philando Castile today. This was done with Cheryl Corley, based in Chicago. And there's no data sonification, but uh, people on my team went in and got this data about Philando Castile's driving record and, and how often he was pulled over. Um, and it made for a great radio story. And it also made for some really strong and powerful data visualizations, sort of getting behind the story, right? This wasn't the first time that Castile had been pulled over. When Castile was killed by the police, it wasn't the first time that he'd been pulled over. He'd been pulled over a lot by the police because of uh, his driving route that he had to take every day. And, and 
Um, the reporting showed that, and it made for really powerful reporting. Similarly, I worked on a project, uh, maybe the only time Morning Edition has ever given a shout-out to a Jupiter notebook. Um, we analyzed, uh, we used a sentiment an analysis algorithm on Trump's tweets and, and saw some really interesting patterns. It made for a pretty cool Morning Edition story, it, which actually also went on the NPR Politics podcast. It made for a good digital spot. It's the one time my mom called and was like, oh, I heard, heard you on the radio. Um, it's also when Ari Shapiro told me that I had a voice for coding, um, <laughs> which, uh, which might be true. Uh, all right, so uh, data also shows us things that, that we couldn't otherwise understand, and a lot of the rest of my examples will be more visual, but you can certainly use it in, in creative ways in audio and, and in ways that are complementary to audio. This is from the world of sports and, and uses the, the actual physical space of a, of a basketball court to understand players' patterns and can mash together thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of data points into these really clear and readable sort of charts. And one of the things that you see here that's really important is, is that it's annotated, that, that, that the person who's reporting on this is telling us what we're seeing. They've analyzed it. They're helping us understand it. And sports in general is just a great place to look for inspiration in, in working with data, precisely because sports itself just deals so much with data. And there's a lot of resources in that world. And so it's a great place to look for inspiration because you'll find a lot more sophisticated stuff, I think, than, than you will in, in other parts of the media. Now, data is collaborative, too. It's really hard for us to do this ourselves. I mean, I think more, more and more places need to be investing in these kinds of skills. But nonetheless, like, big data sets are hard to manage. And so here's one that uh, uh, was done by a group here in Chicago earlier this year. Um, it's called Shy.Vote. Uh, uh, I now work for one of the organizations that was a partner in it, um, but wasn't at the time. I just watched it, and I loved it. And, uh, and so Shy.Vote is, is about 10 partner organizations work together to make this mobile-optimized thing that gives you a bunch of different kinds of key information about elections, both you know, information about the candidates and the races, um, but also just basic stuff like, how do you register? Can I register at the polling place? What is my polling place? And it was really interesting to sort of see this play out because uh, uh, another publication in Chicago launched their own election guide. And readers themselves, the audience themselves, was like, why don't you join the collaborative? Right? Like, you were seeing this on social media. Like, like, what's wrong with you? Like, there's this awesome resource. I can get everything I need from it. Why are you doing your own thing? Which was a really interesting thing to see. You're all probably familiar with the Panama Papers and the Paradise Papers. You know, 400 contributors to both of those projects. Just massive numbers of people sort of tackling this data. And I think, I think that's a really important thing to think about. This is the most exciting thing to see. But uh, this is software that was created by uh, NPR, the New York Times, the Boston Globe, the LA Times, lots of contributors, um, smaller ones, St. Louis, Public Radio contributed to this, uh, uh, INN. And again, it's not that exciting to see, but what this represents is the plumbing that gives you election results. Um, and so a group of, of news organizations led uh, initially by the New York Times and NPR, but then uh, expanded to include lots of others, said, we need to end the elections data arms race. Like, it's silly 
that news organizations are competing on who can afford the best and fanciest and most software developers and engineers to deal with this crappy data. Why don't we just fix it so for everybody so we can go back to competing over who, who's going to win Instagram, who's going to win Snapchat, who's going to serve the mobile audience, who's going to serve the desktop audience, who's going to serve the YouTube audience, who's going to serve the radio audience, right? Like, like it's dumb to be fighting fighting a tech arms race in an era where we've lost half of our newsroom jobs in print, where the entire industry is 25% down from what it was, was even 10 years ago, right? Like, it's really, really dumb to be competing over that stuff. And so we said, let's not. Let's create some open source software and let's solve this problem together so we can get, get on with competing over fun things. And so this, so this software elects Pairs results it's probably hundreds of publications um, through syndication, but at least dozens of publications directly use Alex to deliver election results. So if you see New York Times election results, NPR election results, LA Times election results, um, it's powered by this software. Now, data stories aren't always data stories. So this is a project that I did at NPR um, about lead pipes. And it started as a data story. Where's the data? But, but what we started to realize is after reporting and reporting and reporting is, is we weren't going to get good data about lead pipes. There were disincentives for decades um, to collect information about where lead service lines existed. And so we made some news that you could use. So we made Pokemon Go to find out if you're poisoning yourself or if, if your house is poisoning you. And so it wasn't a data story, but it was a data-driven story. Data couldn't tell the story, but we couldn't have told it without the data analysis that we did. Two kind of notable things about this story. One, uh, over 70% of people actually finished it, um, which is crazy, right? Like, you're lucky if, like, you know, people get halfway through your stuff most of the time. And in this case, people who came were incredibly motivated to actually use it and interact with it, which was really gratifying. Um, but the other thing is, you know, the news you can use, right? So we, we put it in English and Spanish. Thought, oh, you know, we're, we're, we're sort of thinking that we'd get kind of, you know, either Spanish-speaking communities in the U.S. or border communities would be, and, and, and communities uh, directly south of the border in Mexico would be interested in this content. Saw hardly anything coming from Mexico, but a lot of hits were coming from coastal Spain. And guess what? Coastal Spain had a building boom around the same time that the U.S. had a building boom where lead pipes were, were mandated. And we were like, whoa, amazing. We didn't do any follow-up reporting, but it was this interesting way in which, in which data infuses everything, right? Like, it's your, it's your website analytics, but your website analytics can actually show you, can actually raise reporting questions, right? Like, who's looking at your content actually can help you understand what to report next um, in a very substantive way. So it was, it was a really interesting project that way. Data can be very practical. It's actually one of the most powerful things that you can do with data is just help somebody get on with their lives in some way or another. Um, the LA Times has been running these wildfire maps, and one of the important components is, is you see these wavy lines, and, and that's where you're at risk of damaging your body from smoke inhalation. Um, so that's important information to know. This is something uh, that, that uh, I built for the Chicago Reporter. It's a lookup tool for, uh, gover for just government phone numbers. 
Illinois has more local governments than any state in the country. Um, every town actually has two uh, governmental structures, the town and the township, and they have different responsibilities. They're both elected. Um, it's, it's very chaotic. It's very fragmented. And so we think it's important for people to be able to call. It's also a very different, I think, philosophy than most sort of media, which is like, you know, I want you to sit and really take your time with my content and engage with it. No, like I want you in and out, right? Like I want, I want to serve you in 15 seconds or less with this tool. Um, I want you coming back and using it often, and we've optimized it for mobile, we've put it in multiple languages. Um, it's open source, so if you want to contribute a language or, or want to make it better, you can. But ultimately, like, like we're trying to make something here that's, that, that is sort of driving towards being an accountability tool. We're not interested in monopolizing people's time. We're interested in getting them to click the email button or the phone button, make a call, contact your local government. Do it often and early, the Chicago way. Here's Nonprofit Explorer. This is an amazing uh, piece by, uh, amazing tool that, that ProPublica made. It accounts for a huge amount of just ProPublica's traffic in the first place. Um, and, uh, and, and it's great, because if you work for a nonprofit and you want to know how much your boss makes, <laughs> check this out. It's the 990 filings by the IRS for nonprofits. And anytime you're backgrounding a nonprofit, you should check out Nonprofit Explorer. It's just this amazing kind of brass tacks reporting research kind of tool. Very practical. Um, text is, in fact, data. And this is an interesting example. So uh, Politico does these live annotations. A um, couple, couple news organizations do um, these live annotations um, or, or after-the-fact annotations of, of government speeches and things like that. It shows the full context. You can accuse it of being selective, right? And interestingly, right, like this started as audio. It becomes text, and then it gets annotated to give it deeper meaning. And so, you know, you can see this sort of way that, that data sort of moves around and, and that things that don't look like data may be data. There's, all sorts of also, there's also all sorts of ways to sort of uh, analyze text in other ways. So data can turn spectacle into evidence. It's a big circus right now, right? Like we've got a presidential administration that makes a lot of smoke in a lot of places and, and, and data can turn that kind of circus into something that's, that's more substantial and more meaningful and kind of bring it, bring it down to earth. E you know, even the smartest people will become distracted by the performance and, and, and lose sense of the lines that are being spoken, and, and, and data can help us kind of get back to that. So data is also, now we're going to start getting into the more heavy stuff, but uh, uh, so data is also often actually reflects something else that's happening. Right? So there's often some underlying thing that's happening, that there's a signal in the data, but what it means isn't necessarily obvious. And, and this is a really interesting example. So Reuters was uh, covering uh, police killings in the Philippines under the Duterte regime. And, and they'd been doing it for a while, uh, along with other Filipino media. And so the police were like, we got we to gotta hide what we're doing. We got to not, you know, you know we, we got to make sure that all these people that we're killing are not being noticed. So after they would kill people, they'd load them onto an ambulance and send them to the hospital where they would be declared dead on arrival um, as a way of sort of cleaning up the crime scene very quickly and trying to avoid detection. But hospitals also collect data. <laughs> And so Reuters went to the hospitals and said, what's been happening with DOAs? And so all of a sudden, when it, they were having a really hard time understanding the scale of the problem, they understood that the problem was happening because they were reporting on it, but they didn't know how much it was happening because they couldn't be everywhere at once. 
all of a sudden they're able to go to the go to hospitals and say, "How? Hey, what's what's the change in DOAs over the you know over the the last months?" And all of a sudden they're getting very good signals, good quote unquote, but they're getting they're getting much more accurate signals about how much state sanctioned violence and murder was actually happening, precisely because the police were trying to cover it up and it created a new data signal. So I think that's a really interesting case of sort of one kind of data standing in for something else. Another really interesting example, it's not in the slides, but in the maternal mortality reporting that uh, uh, Nina Martin did um, with NPR and ProPublica, one of the main data sources was GoFundMe. So as moms are dying, people are putting up GoFundMe campaigns. And so GoFundMe becomes a proxy for something that's happening out in the world. And you see a rise in pages for fundraisers for mothers who died during ch in childbirth on GoFundMe. And so it becomes this, this sort of shadow data set that's tracking something else that's happening in the world. Something pretty sad. I don't know that the GoFundMe people were like, oh yeah, our data is going to help create accurate statistics about, about maternal mortality. And yet, and yet their data reflected this larger social trend. Now, I'm going to be a little critical of a project, and this is one I worked on, and I want to be careful about it, but data can sort of not always say very much. And so this is a project that we worked on at ProPublica, and it's, it's HUD inspections, Housing and Urban Development Inspections. It's a cool project. It's handsome. It looks nice. It works pretty well. But I don't think it, I just never felt it was quite deep enough. You know, it didn't really question, like, how accurate are these inspections? Um, what do these inspections mean? You know, just it just it didn't it didn't quite go deep enough. It became kind of data trivia. I mean, I feel like what it what what could have worked better is just releasing the data, cleaning up the data. That was an important thing that we did, and then and then analyzing it in some way. And it would have been less work too, right? Like we put a lot of work into this, and I'm not sure what the the value was beyond you know actually just releasing a spreadsheet and then and then doing other kinds of analysis. And maybe I'm being too harsh on it, but I feel like it's a danger, right? And and in a in an industry where most of us don't have the sort of resources that that a big player like ProPublica has, we have to be really careful about how we use those resources and 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 not kind of fall into traps where where we're doing work that we don't necessarily need to be doing. All right, so we're now now we're at the the really heavy part. I mean, I think the most powerful thing that data can do really is subvert official narratives and undercut predominant framings, you know, that we see. And, and, and often that data counts the dead and, and the wounded, people who've been hurt um, in some way. You know, if data journalism has a founder, I think it's probably Ida B. Wells. Um, people would say maybe Philip Myers in the 1980s, but Ida B. Wells in the 1890s was doing all the stuff that we're talking about today. She created her own database um, of lynchings in the country. She validated that database by looking at, at data that was being collected by the Chicago Tribune. She used that data to sort of lay out what the, the predominant narratives around why this was happening were and, and undercut them. It's hard to see, but it, it, what it says is tabulated statistics and alleged causes, and that alleged carries a lot of weight. Like it's a really bitter alleged, right? She she she's here to she's here to undercut the narratives about about why this was happening. And historians have found that 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 her analysis was perhaps the richest, certainly the richest at the time. And so I was talking about this with my coworker yesterday morning, and he was like, "I carry around the red record in my bag as a reminder." 
So I, I got his copy, and, and you know, you can really see it at work. Um, so this is a book that that uh, has tabulated statistics. It's just tables, not really tables, sort of the lists, you know, pre-tables of numbers. And then, and then these descriptions of, of individual cases, I'm not going to read this, but I'm going to read you the title, Tried to Manufacture an Outrage. She's, she's immediately going after these sort, of, these sort of pat narratives about what happened, digging into them and finding out what really happened. And so I think Ida B. Wells is somebody who's worth studying and who's worth thinking about and, and whose work really blaze the trail for, for the kind of work that, that I do and, and I think a lot of us do. And I really recommend, you know, checking out the red record and, and just sitting with it and, and also just sitting with, it's just a, it's very old-timey language, but it's a real mastery class in how you dismantle a, a narrative of power in service of something else. Here's a project, and again, it kind of goes to a lot of these themes. This is a project that was done by Nicole Santa Cruz and Iris Lee uh, at the LA Times. And so Los Angeles has had uh, open crime data for a long time, including homicide data. The LA Times has tracked homicides um, in Los Angeles for a long time. And, you know, the, the sort of standard narrative is uh, well, they're slowly going down. Um, things are, you know, things are getting better. What Iris Lee and Nicole Santa Cruz did is they, they went and they looked at every homicide and they figured out whether it was intimate violence or not. And even while homicides in Los Angeles are going down, uh, murder because of intimate violence is actually going up. And so they took this data set, they took this narrative, and they did more with it. They, they looked for something deeper in it, and they found something really troubling in it. And it's also just a really good example, I think, of, uh, of just how to do this, right? They make sure that, that you know, they make sure that, that they're connecting people with resources related to the issue. They tell us how they got the data, how they validated the data. The code itself is open, so you can examine their analysis. So they really approach this with incredible care and tell this really important story. And then this last one is something that I worked on uh, with a, a large reporting team in Mexico. And I'll just say a few things about it. But um, since the drug war started um, in Mexico in 2008, um, Mexico has been plagued by mass disappearance. And these things called fosas comunas, mass graves or, or communal graves. And the government, the federal government, for, for years said, well, it's not more than 1,000, right? There's, there's, it's a problem, but, but you know, we've, we've sort of got it under control. They, they had a narrative about it. And so a group of reporters in Mexico, uh, uh, independent reporters, sort of asked, you know, is, is this true? Um, and how could we figure out if it's, if it's not true? And what they realized is that they could FOIA every state, of the country, they were relying, you know, before they were relying on federal numbers. So they wrote, you know, over a hundred FOIA requests and FOIA'd every state to to find out what the states were tracking. And even with some states that weren't even tracking it at all, one one state wrote back and was like, "What's a mass grave?" Um, which was just remarkable. Um, we don't know what a mass grave is. They they compiled these numbers and they simply added them up and they found that. Just based on what the states were tracking, there were at least 2,000 mass graves in the country. In this project, we really, we really tried to kind of think about the audience in, in a couple different ways. So we have this, this map, this graphic. You know, you, you see that it's not particularly salacious, right? Like the colors are cool. Um, 
you're really trying to kind of step back from the horror because what you're seeing is horrible enough, right? Like, we don't need to make this more horrible. Even, you know, even though these are dots on a map, like, the instant you, that you think about what they represent, it's like, shit. But you can see patterns here, too. So, see along, along the coast... Um, here, this is La Bestia. This is one of the main uh, immigration routes up through Mexico. So, so there were sort of multiple layers to how we were presenting this data. So we had this map that was really meant to kind of uh, tell the story really strongly and substantially, but very quickly to a mass audience. We, you know, we wanted people to sort of take out their phone and, and, and put it in the face of government officials and say, you know, what's going on? What are you doing about this? We also wrote a 6,000-word kind of like deep narrative investigation. Uh, Marcella Tarati, one of the collaborators, wrote that. And, and, but we knew it wasn't going to reach a huge audience. It would reach an influential audience, but it wasn't going to sort of reach the masses. And then if you actually click through on, on any of these states, you'll go to a page that has detailed information about the, the record-keeping of those states and, and everything that was learned during the project, and that's for the families. So we really tried to kind of create different layers. We didn't want to penalize people who didn't want to go deeper and just wanted to understand kind of the big picture. But we also wanted to reward people who did want to go deeper and, and dig in more in the subject matter. And it really, it really changed discourse in, in the country. The, the federal, so, so we published it right before the government was about to change. The old government was like, we're going to sue the pants off you. The new government came in, started using the 2,000 number. Then they mysteriously switched back to the 1,000 number for a while. Then they created a commission, and now they think there's more than 3,000 uh, mass graves in the country. And so, and we always said when, when, when we were presenting this, this is the baseline, right? Like, like this is a, we know there's more, but even using the, the government's own tools for counting this, there's more than they say there are. There are, and and just adding those numbers can have a really profound effect, and that gets gets me to one of my favorite uh, quotes. Something that really um, I think speaks to to what it means to be a professional when it comes to data. This is this is a, a biologist and doctor from the nineteenth uh, century. Um, medical statistics will be our standard of measurement. We will weigh life for life and see where the dead lie thicker among the workers or among the privileged. And that gets me to sort of my last point, which is that for all the awesome power of data, it's not going to bring back a single person who's been disappeared in Mexico, right? Um, it's not going to bring back a single person who, who died at the hands of their spouse or their lover in, in Los Angeles. And that's not to say it's not important, but it's to say we should be humble about what it can do and careful about what it can do and really think about what it can and can't do. And, and I will say sort of as the counterpoint to sort of what, I, what I'm saying here is when I presented the, the map of the graves to a group of uh, high school students um, in Chicago public schools, so I was trying to get their attention with kind of fun things. So I was like, look at this cool chart we did about Cardi B. I'm cool. Hello, kids, right? Um, Cardi B. Uh, and they're like, uh-huh, okay, this guy's weird. And I pulled up the, the mass grave map, and they got a little more serious. But then there was kind of an old guy in the, the corner of the room. It was career day, so these kids were kind of coming from all different parts of the school. And so he, he like, raises his hand, and he's like, hey, you know, most of you, you know, I'm the teacher. I'm Mr. Fernandez. I'm the teacher's assistant. Um, in this classroom, most of you don't know me because you, you don't normally come here. He's like my brother was disappeared in Colombia in 2006. 
these rowdy ass kids were just like, whoa. And I was like, whoa. And, and, and he shared his story. And he said it was so important. The thing that was so striking about it was that he said, he said that it was so important just that somebody acknowledged that it, was a, that it, that it happened. That there was no such acknowledgement in, in his case. And his mother sat in the window until the day she died, waiting, waiting for her son to come back. And so I think it kind of speaks to both but the limits of what this can do, but also the importance of doing it, right? The importance of bearing witness and and um, and, and and doing exactly what what Rudolf Virchow said, like like let's count, let's 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 see what's going on here. And so I think you know I, I, I think it's just something I want to leave you with is is just that sense that we need to be we need to be humble about what this this can do, and it's very easy as a journalist to sort of get stars in our eyes about what data can do and what and and we also need to think about what it can't do and and who it serves. So at this point I'd like to open it up for questions. I know that's kind of a bummer to end on, but uh, I think it's really important to talk about. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, thank you. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about fact-checking data. Um, often I'm getting data either from government sources or from like nonprofits who collect data I'm, work I'm looking at. And how do I verify that that's actually correct? <laughs> it, I mean, it depends. You really have to put your reporter hat on. Anything you can do to sort of cross-validate is, is going to be really important. So, yeah, so, so the same way that Ida B. Wells... She knew, she knew of a lot more data points than, than went into her book, um, but she only included those that she had a separate independent verification of. Um, and I think that's really important. We did that with the Mexico map as well. We thought, well, maybe we could look at media reports and build up an even, an even richer map. What we realized was that the media reports were just way too, um, way, way, way too uh, uh, messy. Um, and unreliable, and so I think I think that's that's important. Um, talking to experts, you know, making sure that they they think that that this is something that's possible, and that was part of the thing with the the lead pipes project is you know is is the experts kept telling us like you can't trust the data, um, and if experts are telling you you can't trust the data, you probably shouldn't. And then there's also there's also stuff about just being careful about about. Presenting data in ways that might be uh, inaccurate or volatile—that's um, a little—that's a little different. But yeah, I mean, I mean, I think it's really brass tacks reporting um, uh, is, is the biggest is is probably my best answer. 
I'm wondering, considering like your the technical background that you have, what sort of base knowledge is required to kind of approach projects like this, aside from like kind of being dangerous with Excel? <laughs> that's a lot, right? That's a, that's a lot. So the Mass Graves project in Mexico, that was all Google Sheets. Um, I was just typing stuff into Google Sheets and, and I wrote some software to put it into Mapbox and that software is relatively fancy. Uh, Mapbox has actually improved quite a bit just over the last couple of years and, and you could probably do it just using a spreadsheet at this point, or at least most of it. Uh, you, could, you could reproduce it with just Mapbox and a, and a spreadsheet at this point. I wrote a, a thing for the NPR training blog called How to Interview a Big Pile of Data. And it's just a simple kind of like step-by-step, use Google Sheets to uh, answer some reporting questions. Um, the Los Angeles Times has some excellent guides. Uh, first Python notebook, first news application. Again, very detailed, very, you know, very, very step-by-step but doing basic things like mapping and, and looking at uh, campaign finance data, um, a little more sophisticated uses. I also have one about using web APIs to answer basic reporting questions that's also built around a reporting task. So the mayor says the, the mayor of Chicago says the, and, and the president says that uh, crime is up in Chicago and is it, um, is the question that it tries to answer using that data source, but using some more sophisticated tools. But you can get a long way with Excel. Um, you can get a really long way with Excel. Piggybacking on that, um, I have a communications policy background and my coworker is a homelessness reporter and we talk about this constantly. We, what would you say about how to get like a greater sense of competence with using data? Not just like, here's this Excel spreadsheet and I'm gonna ask it one question, but like if I were gonna dive in more deeply um, as someone who does not have a software engineering background, where would you suggest uh, people start? That's a really, that's a good way of asking that question. I mean, I think repetition is helpful. Like just just looking at data and numbers frequently. Um, I think exploratory data visualization can be really helpful. We should talk more about this. So, so there's a couple kind of key tricks. One is to create, I will say two very practical things. One is categorize and the other is create time series. Um, and so when I say categorize, what I mean is, you know, if you've got a bunch of data, if you can go through that data and say, you know, like the LA Times project, this is intimate violence. Um, I'm trying to think of a, a less uh, intense example, but, but categorizing data or, or with crime, the FBI has categories for crime, violent crime, property crime. So you could look at all crime, but you could also use the FBI categories to say how much property crime and how much violent crime are happening. And that actually gives you a much richer view. And then, and then the other thing that can be really powerful is to group by time, um, by day, by month, by year. Um, and maybe your grouping variable isn't time, but grouping, grouping and categorization are, are really crucial because they, they sort of let you step back and see something from a, from a bigger picture view. Hi, David. Thanks for being here. It's so nice to see you here. Um, I want to ask a question about something that I've been mulling about a lot, and I'm not sure that I have a fully coherent question. But everyone in this room knows that true crime has become a very popular category. And I have a lot of issues with this. And having worked on a podcast that has been called true crime, but 
I think is not at all like some other podcasts and having like great respect for podcasts like In the Dark, aside from telling incredible story, used, did some incredible work with data as well. I guess my question, I've started to think about this as a, a sort of a, some parts of this, I don't, I don't want to speak badly of all of it, as a sort of a new version of if it bleeds, it leads. And I think, and I, I guess what I'm trying to get at is, are there ways in which some true crime, just like other kinds of reporting and storytelling, um, skew our sense of data? That this is the classic idea that you think there are more um, of a particular kind of crime because of what you see in the media. You're always seeing stories about this kind of crime, and therefore you think it's a horrible thing. Um, so, in to try and put a question uh, together there, I guess, can you talk from your perspective about where you, what you see as the right way to, um, to tell stories in a data-informed way in podcasts about crime, and do you think this is a problem? <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to see myself out. <laughs> um, uh, no, it's an, excellent, it's an excellent question. I do think a lot, I, I, I agree. I mean, I totally agree. I, th I think a lot of it can get kind of salacious and, and it, it can, it's sort of the podcast version of, of if it bleeds, it leads. Um, and can also kind of skew perception. Courts are really hard because our court system, speaking of things that are tracked and things that aren't, Right, like, 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 judges are some of the most accountable sort of people in government, right? And in Illinois, <laughs> you can't FOIA the courts by judicial order, <laughs> which is so deeply ironic. Like, 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 the idea that a judge would just be like, "Oh, you can't FOIA us. You can't find out what's happening. He what's actually happening here." But even if you could, the data that they're collecting is for archival purposes. They're really not collecting data for analysis because they don't, well, I'm not gonna say, I'm not gonna speculate what they want or don't want. It would appear from the outside that there's concerted efforts not to analyze this in systematic ways, right? Like the data is collected in such a way that it's really hard to say how many people are, are actually convicted of murder? What are, you know, like what are success rates in, in the courts? Um, and this is true all around the country. It's true in Cook County. It's true in Illinois. And that makes it really hard um, to kind of put things in context. Um, Kim Fox, the, uh, the state's attorney in Cook County the other day, just uh, a couple weeks ago, said we're going we're gonna, to, with marijuana legalization, we're going to expunge tens of thousands of people's records. But I'm working on a project right now that I can't talk much more about. But what I can tell you is that tens of thousands sounds like a lot, but there's hundreds of thousands. I, I, I really don't have a good answer except to say, seek out that data which can provide that context and understand that scale the other thing is is learn from the activists. So one of the ways that the activists have gotten around uh, uh, these issues with with uh, lack of transparency in Cook County courts is to sample them, right? That they send people to these to, to courtrooms um, in a systematic way. They work with statisticians to figure out how to sample um, what's happening in courtrooms to extrapolate it out to a bigger picture. Um, and that can be a way, and it's 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 hard work. Uh, it's very time intensive, 
but it's 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 an entirely doable thing. There's uh, Patrick Ball, the Human Rights Data Something Group, HR DAG, in the Bay Area are real experts in doing this. Um, they'd be worth seeking out if you're interested in that. But anything to get that context that that tells you whether what you're hearing is normal um, or if it's a complete outlier. And, and either, fine, right? Like, like both can make for really powerful storytelling and... and reporting but it's good to know which one it is right like it's good to know if this is like what happens every day and it's good to know if this what what you're hearing is is some great deviation from the norm hi thanks for the uh presentation uh my question relates to like um reusing data and also uh to the fact that pretty often it seems to me that at least in these fanciest of the fancy data journalism projects the end the form of the end result like the thing that we're looking for the the information that we're querying the data for it has to be decided pretty early on and it seems like you sort of have to settle on the form of the final thing pretty early on in the process whereas if you if you were sort of working on a generic story you could sort of gather material for a long time and then sort of pivot and and you know look at it in different ways so is there a kind of structural way where basically you've done for example, if you if you took the mass grave data and that project, could you think of a sort of a systematic way to reuse that data to do a different kind of project, or or are they always so closely tied together, like the thing that you've been looking for in the data, that you're sort of stuck with that one thing that you built out of it, and that's pretty much it. Oh, that's really good. No, so so I think I think if you're going to invest in data. At all, you should really try to be figuring out ways to go back to it and, and ways to make it reusable. Um, I'm not gonna. I, I think you're right, actually, that that often those those formal choices are made early in the process, um, and and I think that's actually kind of a mistake of the way that that newsrooms tend to manage um, technical resources. Uh, I, th I, I think a much better approach actually is. And, and you'll hear this when you when you listen to video game designers. They'll be like, well, we tried this, and we threw it away, and we tried that, and we threw it away. Um, and part of that's because they have resources to do that. But part of it's a mindset, right? Um, I, I, I think, I think but, but it requires investing in a specific set of skills, so product management and design specifically. So on the NPR visuals team, we said we would never have... We would always have one designer for every developer because the developer is so much more powerful when they're paired with a designer who can make the work really go. Um, there's a group from the BBC that covered the Indian elections, 11 languages, um, you know, almost a, over a billion people, right? Uh, you know, half a billion people or more showed up to, to vote, and their team was two designers, one developer, one reporter, and an editor. Right, and and so I think I think the way that you break out of that process is is by planning really hard and then doing all the technical work at the end, so that you can make those choices as late in the process as you can when you know the most. Right, so I think I, I think there are ways to sort of invert that, but I think if you let the nerds lead, what's going to happen is that the nerds, and I say this as somebody who totally does this, the nerds are going to like go down their nerd rabbit hole. And they're going to try to like they're going to try to kind of prescribe what it should be early in the process when there really needs to be this design process going. And at the end, you know what you're doing and you can bang it out really quick, which, which is actually much closer to traditional news production models, right? So, hi, uh, this is 
Great. Um, so I had a question just basically in terms of like the types of projects that you're doing and whether or not like these were assigned or if someone sort of comes to you saying like I've noticed this happening. Can you look and see if this actual data backing up or if you're like, oh, let's look into this somehow. Just wondering like how you get onto all these different topics because you've done a variety of many topics. All of the above. Usually driven by some kind of a reporting question, whether it's my reporting question or somebody else's. Yeah, really, really all of the above. I mean, it almost always starts with with some kind of a question, like like is the federal government in Mexico? Like like is what is that thousand graves number? Like like how how does is is that true? Right? Like a question like that. When I was at NPR, it was coming from reporters a lot of the time. When I was at ProPublica, it was a little. A little, a little more self-generated, um, and and that can be challenging as well because you know, parking tickets. Nobody's necessarily going to jail because they came up with a bad parking ticket policy, right? So, so there's this sort of question about is this going to have the sort of impact that we hope? And so we really had to demonstrate the scale of the problem to our editors um, to really get them to buy in, but they did. And it led to some really good reforms. I don't think there's sort of a, a formula, you know, for, for figuring it out. And, and personally, I like working with reporters and, and, and uh, other newsroom folks and, and figuring out sort of how we can shape something that, that they're doing. Um, but there's plenty of people who do stuff like I do who, who are really like generate their own ideas. Um, so there's a lot of ways to come at it. Um, I know you talked a little bit about um, sonification early on and gave some examples, um, which I appreciated. Um, I was wondering, just you know, a lot of the a lot of the data um, that that you were showing that was sonified, um, it seemed like I don't want to say simple, but but like the the data that was being visualized, right, um, can sort of become much more complex and interactive in a way that um, for me right now it's it's hard to imagine being sonified, um, and I'm sure. You know, everyone in this room probably has different creative ideas about how that could be done. I'm wondering, in your, in your experience, if you know you you see possible other avenues of of making that um, you know making that happen in sound, in radio, and podcasting, uh, and and how you know as an audio producer you might go about um, or anyone might go about uh, about doing that with more complex data or more interactive data. Yeah, I mean, nobody interacts with your stuff. That's one thing. To note, um, I went on a little Twitter rant about it. So you know, it's it's always important to show people the full story when you're visualizing, no matter what. Um, that's a side note, but it's important because you see these fancy interactives, like, oh, how do I, you know, bring that spirit to my my audio? And it's like, well, what spirit? Because nobody actually clicks the play button. You know, two, three, four percent of people might. I, it sounds tricky. You know, it's it, it is limited. But but the other thing is that I think most of the examples that I showed are actually relatively simple applications of data. There's no fancy machine learning. There's no statistics. Um, involved in most of these. I mean, it's a lot of kind of counting. Uh, you know, the, the one thing that, that, that I do think works really well for sonification is something that happens over time, right? Like, like you listen to audio in real time, and so, so you can sort of use that element of time, that dimension of time, um, to help you out. And I'm, I'm excited to see what y'all figure out. Um, and they just told me it's time. So thank you so much. I feel like you're beating yourself up unnecessarily about the HUD inspection. <laughs>
Because I, I'm so, my name's Tini Diver. I'm from Durham, North Carolina. I'm a, I'm a documentarian, but I'm also a community organizer. And we actually used that very um, data set in some um, organizing we've been doing with uh, residents in the Durham Housing Authority uh, oh, communities cool. in Durham. And so we um, knew that that source wasn't the end-all be-all, but it was a starting place for us to then go and do some more FOIA work with HUD. Um, and because we were actually organizing with the residents, we could actually have, we actually were able to verify some really pinpoint uh, data points um, in some of the communities because we could say, oh, that's Sherry's unit or that's Delicia's unit, that's Shanika's unit. Oh, you know, and tie the score. So just wanted to say, it's not as bad as you think. It's very, we, like, we appreciate it in Durham, at least. Don't know about everybody else. Awesome. Um, and similarly, we, you know, similarly been digging into uh, the eviction data in Durham as well. So like, you know, um, you know, we've looked at Eviction Lab and, you know, that's what they've done. And again, it's not perfect, but for a lot of, um, and they all, it all goes back to what the intention of the data is and, inten and the intention of these sets and who's the audience and who it's for. Um, and so for, I'll just say in my own case, um, my world as an organizer, a lot of times it's a starting point, And even if it's not a perfect set or a perfect whatever, not necessarily up to date, again, it's a place to at least start and do some more digging. So, um, so I have a question oh. about that. So how okay. how accurate was it? Because there was one of the the issues that we that that I saw talking with people in Chicago, and even you know was, was just that that it was just too far out of whack to really pinpoint anything well, I useful. Think, yeah, and again, it depends on what you're using it for. So in our case, we were looking at a very specific landlord, which is the Durham Housing Authority. We were looking at a very specific community, the Hoover Road Apartments, um, over in South Hoover in Angier in East Durham. If you're familiar with Durham, and so. For us, we, again, we were able to um, use, it met our purposes. Um, I don't know if we were trying to extrapolate in terms of citywide, and we were looking at private, you know, folks that are, um, you know, housing people who get, who are on Section 8 vouchers or whatever, or if we were doing a larger complex like McDougal Terrace or Cornwallis or Oxford Manor, how that would work out. But again, I think because we were, we had a pretty defined um, community, and it was a place we were actually, like, we have relationships with those people um, I, that for us made the difference. So, um, did that answer your question? Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, so that being said, um, I wanted to ask, so one thing I think about as it relates to, um, you know, I come to this work as a documentarian and I'm very, I'm great, very grateful, um, for the foundation, um, that I have, um, having, um, done most of that training at the Center for Documentary Studies and we talk a lot about ethics. And so um, I think a lot about when it comes to this, because I'm both, both a data geek and I also um, spend my time um, documenting and organizing in a kind of range of communities. And so, and I'm thinking too about the map you just showed about the killings in Mexico. And so in the comment you made about how people are accessing the data um, versus how you're presenting it. So I guess, I guess what I'm, what I'm, what I'm, the question I'm thinking about is, how do you ensure that the people whose data you're using um, you know, to to create whatever this visualization, et cetera, that you're presenting in such a way that at the end of the day, it's going to be useful for them. Because I know we the word power has come up as a theme throughout the day, and I think it's actually really important to when we say power to define what we mean. So I'm when I say power, I I use it in the you know connected to the root word for there, so the ability to act, right? So in that in that case, then if I think about how do we if we're taking this data, let's say eviction data, inspection, whatever then how am I making sure that the people whose data that I'm actually using to create this then are able to have a tool that will enable them to act in whatever way it is, whether it's to say to, you know, 
the CEO of the German Housing Authority, no, we're not crazy, there's predatory evictions going on in our community, or say to the city inspector, no, we're not crazy, we've got chronic mold and it's illegal and it needs to be fixed. So, sorry, it's a long question, but that's, did that, did I, did it yeah, land? Did it land? Awesome, that, okay. That's an awesome okay. question though. I mean, I, 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 I'd be curious what uh, other people have to say. I mean, one thing that I think a lot about is, you know, just, just developing, as, as you're developing these things, user testing, you know, bringing people in um, who have various kinds of subject, subject matter expertise. Um, and subject matter expertise could be you're an academic who studies these things. Subject matter expertise could be you've spent a lot of time in lockup. Um, right? So, you know, I think, I think that's really important. I think thinking about the devices that people use um, is really important that Mexican, the project in Mexico is, was really eye-opening to me um, in the sense that it was over 70% mobile traffic, 90% of those devices were crappy Android devices, right? Like it's such a far, <laughs> far cry from, from your typical NPR audience um, or, you know, any kind of elite media in the U.S. that reaches the coasts People are on Apple devices, a lot less mobile users, even though that's growing. But, you know, people are, wow, like 65% mobile. And, and we're looking, you know, with this project in Mexico, it was like, if you took out the embeds from TV stations, like 85% mobile traffic, right? So I think thinking about the kinds of devices uh, that people use is, is one way to target it uh, and think about that stuff. It's 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 a, it's an interesting question. I mean, I mean, I guess the other thing is is finding out if it's used the way that you hope it is, right? Figuring out actually tests to to see, and and that's actually part of my my criticism of of HUD inspect is is that we didn't do a very good job of seeing how it was actually being used out in the world. Um, so my data point was just sort of looking at how it was being used in Chicago, um, or how it applied to Chicago, and we found that the uh, you know I looked talked to some housing advocates and stuff and and you know it was just the the HUD inspection data just wasn't reliable enough to really be particularly useful in that context but because we weren't systematically measuring it as well as I think we could have you know we also missed stories like yours it's great to hear that so um, I think figuring out if it's having the effect that you hope is really important. And then, so to use GovBook, the government lookup tool, we're, tr we're tracking. We're trying to see how quickly people are using it, how quickly people are able to execute searches, and if they click on one of those email links or phone links, you know, because that's, that's the thing that we're hoping that they do. We hope that they contact government. Um, we don't have a baseline. We don't really know how many people should be using it to contact government or, you know, what they're going to ultimately use it for. Um, but we're trying to track and, and see to some degree what, what that behavior is. Anonymously, we're GDPR compliant and all that stuff. But, uh, uh, but we're, you know, we're really trying to find out what the effects are. Hi, David. Um, <laughs> disclose, we work together. Yeah. <laughs> but I have so many questions. Um, so, but the question I, I want to ask you now is, can you talk more about accessibility in terms of data? So um, you talked about, like Justin answering um, her question, you talked about looking at mobile devices and seeing that, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of people going there first for information, um, and that's just how it's working generally in the industry anyway. But what about like more marginalized communities? Um, how do you how do you work with 
any team that you've worked with um, in, in any newsroom in saying, okay, we can translate the data in this way and that way and that way, and like how, you, how do you decide how many ways you kind of put forth the findings out there? Oh, man, that's, a, that's, a, that's again, a really good and a really difficult question. I think trying to look at past practice and see where things have, have you know, taken root and, and where they haven't. Um, trying to anticipate, you know, what communities are going to be interested. You know, if, you know, we can write a 2,000-word piece in two languages, um, and those two languages are, are uh, or, or we can do, you know, however much audio, or we can build whatever scale app um, or editorial product, um, and we could build something much fancier, but it was it would be for one of the audiences uh, and not both of the potential audiences. I'm not I'm not saying this very articulately. Um, my main point is just that that you have to make that investment and you have to make those choices to actually pursue that stuff. And it's going to mean probably cutting other things that you might have wanted to do. Um, and so I think that's really important is is sort of. Is, is is doing that, making those choices, not trying to you know, not trying to do everything or or, or be everything, but but really trying to kind of like focus your efforts. And so one of the things that lets us do at the reporter, lets us do these bilingual apps, is we don't use a lot of words in them, and so it makes it much easier to translate. Um, I think you know, I've worked in both print and, and radio. I think from a, the print standpoint, you know, that's sort of heresy, like take the words out no but i think that's really important like like we can translate it because it doesn't have that many words to translate and it's more important to me to translate my work than to have a lot of words in it even if that means that it's going to describe a little less of the world and these are also you know i think i think we have to think of these things more like it's sort of like the video game industry does where where nothing's ever actually sort of done they're sort of living products again it was it was more important to me to try to get that phone book app up and then continually improve it than it was to kind of wait nine months and then like, surprise, look at this beautiful, perfect thing that you may or may not want. I'd rather create that tighter feedback loop with with the audience uh, right off the bat and make it as accessible as possible. Hi, I have a question. This is, this is exactly the kind of question I would hate and I get all the time as an audio producer. And I've, I'm sort of annoyed at myself for asking it. But um, like if a print person were to ask me like, how do I start this audio thing? I feel like I could break it down for them very clearly, the steps of writing a story. But I know when I've done investigative work as a journalist and as an audio producer, if I get a database, it feels like just like a closed black box. And it feels like there's just this gap. And like I have done projects where I've just picked up the phone and made a 1,000 phone calls and built my own data set because I'm not a programmer. And I'm wondering if the answer is just like hire one and that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Investing is important, but uh, there's some good resources out there. I wrote one f uh, for the NPR training blog, How to Interrogate a Big Pile of Data. That's a very simple kind of spreadsheet-based exercise where like, we look at a, a salary database and you sort one way, then you sort the other way, and then it does a pivot. We do a pivot table, so it's like you group pivot table, meaning we group by like department and see who has who, which Chicago uh, department spends the most money. It's the police. Um, the LA Times has some really good ones. Uh, they they have like first Python notebook. Um, 
first uh, news application. And there's great videos, too. There's tons of good videos on YouTube around this stuff if, if you prefer to, to consume the content that way. And you can get pretty far sorting and pivoting um, on a data set. Um, there can be tricks and there can be landmines, but but you know you can you can often get pretty far. And and actually, a lot of my job um, prior to becoming an editor uh, was basically creating, taking much more complicated data sets and getting them to the point where a reporter could do that in Excel themselves. Um, so sort of you know so it's sort of the cooking show thing where you cook it up to a certain point and then you stick it in the oven and you, you finish it off. Hey. So in a lot of the examples you gave, or in a few of them, uh, it was cool to see the different visual ways that things are displayed, whether that's infographics or a database format. I think sometimes an experience that I have is I'll see, especially with infographics, I'll be like, oh, this is really cool looking, and like it'll catch my attention for a minute, I'll be, and I'll be like impressed at how cool it is, but I won't, even ne- I won't necessarily engage. So I'm wondering, uh, from a design standpoint and how you present the data, are there trends you've seen um, in terms of what actually gets people, whether they're reporters or just the public actually consuming it in that way, to engage with it? And does making it prettier make it more likely that they'll engage? To the last point, no, not necessarily. It's, it's a really interesting question. So people disagree with me. That's uh, there's lots of different opinions about this. I think that any data visualization needs to stand on its own without any interaction because the interaction rates high interaction rates are very, very low. Um, you know, one in 10 people, maybe one in five people, if you're really lucky, right? This, the same way that if, if you're tracking your scroll depth statistics or, or how long people are listening to your piece, you know, probably about half of them, uh, or, you know, some good number of people are dropping out halfway through, right? Like half or more um, are probably getting bored and leaving. Um, and it's sobering, and it's not fun to see. And but 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 it's it's just sort of the how it works. Um, and uh, and so I mean, tracking I, I do try to track that stuff, and then and then thinking about different ways that you can use it. So that Mexico map was a really interesting one. So there's this debate. Like the editor was like, "Well, people are going to want to click the play button and watch it happen over time, and they're going to want to interact with the map." It's like, yeah, no, it needs to stand on its own, right? Like it need like like it needs to tell the story without any kind of interaction. And then you can go deeper. Like, like you're rewarded for sort of interacting with it, but you don't have to interact with it to understand the story. And and then the thing that yeah, and then and then the 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 thing that actually was really powerful about that was the animation that like five percent of people or four percent of people actually click the play button and watch it animate um, are most uh, viewed and engaged with social content use that animation as just a simple motion graphic. And so we were actually able to take advantage of, of ha- having that interactivity, but it wasn't for people clicking the button, it was for people who were encountering it on social. And we're at time. So thanks, everybody. Hold up. What was that? 
Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, Fresh. 